That's the, uh, the church ghost giving us a little woo right there. Well, morning, everybody. Um, we are going to cover a chunk of ground this morning, and so I'm just going to kind of dive into what we're doing because I don't want to steal all the time away from the Bible. Um, so just by way of reminder, we're in this series. I'm going to say this every week because I want us to remember what we're doing and why we're doing it. So we're in this series called Sent where we're working through the book of Acts and we're asking what can we learn from the early church and how does that inform how we live as the church today? And uh, I'm, I'm very, very convicted that in the West, now let me pause because someone asked me about this the other day, when I say the church in the West, I'm not railing on America, right? The Western church is every predominantly English-speaking country. So you've got America, you've got Canada, you've got the UK, you've got parts of Western Europe, you've got uh, Australia and New Zealand. So when I use Western church, I'm talking like big picture. So anyway, in the Western church, we have lost sight of what it means to be the sent people of God. And we've gotten into the habit, we like to kind of sit around and do our Bible studies and encourage one another and worship God, which is awesome. But the whole purpose of the church is to be God's instrument for reaching the world. So we're walking through this series to try and remind ourselves um, of what this calling is. And so as we're jumping into the book of Acts, Acts starts with Jesus is here, he's been raised from the dead, he's appeared to his disciples and he's preaching about the kingdom of God. So he's defining to them what this is and it's a continuation of everything that he did that we read in Luke's gospel, which, which uh, Luke and Acts were both written by Luke. So this is the continuation. Um, and Jesus is here, he's teaching them and he gives them this commission in Acts chapter one, verse eight, that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So this commission that they're gonna start where they are and they're going to spread the news of Christ's death and resurrection to the rest of the world. So, so that's the commission that they're living under. And so, so this is, this is the, the key of everything that unlocks what Acts is and how it functions. So actually, the whole book is, it revolves around that commission. So the whole layout of the book, the first seven chapters are looking at what's it look like to take the gospel to Jerusalem. Um, chapters eight and nine are going to look at what's it look like when the gospel goes into Judea and Samaria. And then the whole rest of the book is what does it look like when it goes to the ends of the earth. So this whole book is really expanding on the commission to take the gospel um, from Jerusalem, Judea to the ends of the earth. And it's an invitation to us to step into that commission and be part of his instruments of taking the gospel to Hillsborough and to Oregon and to the US and to the ends of the earth. So, so that's the context of the book as a whole. And I'm sharing that because we're about to preach chapter six and seven. And so we're wrapping up this part you're going a little fast for me, Kerry. <laughs> We're about to rip up this part. We're going to uh, end this part where the gospel is in Jerusalem. And the end of today and into next week, we start to transition as the gospel spreads from where it began into to the rest of the world. So in this section, one through seven, um, what we've been talking about is the progression that happens in this part of the book. Um, and you may not know that that's what we've been talking about, but, but you do now. Um, and so again, Jesus is here. He's raised from the dead. He ascends to the right hand of the Father, chapter one. Chapter two, he pours out his spirit and his spirit empowers the church to go. Um, and then after that moment, we see the church start to grow. After that moment, everything in this first section is about the attack that comes to the church. And so if we look at the next slide, the attack happens in multiple ways. So chapter four is this ex 
external persecution as the religious leaders start questioning and, and harassing the church, throwing them in jail, asking them not to preach the gospel. Then the story moves on into chapter five with the story of Ananias and Sapphira who, who give this gift to the church, but they pretend they've given a lot of money. They hold some of it back for themselves. They want the, they want the praise of being generous without actually the cost of generosity. And so there's this moment where th there's this corruption issue inside the church and God deals with it uh, really powerfully and strictly. But then as we go on into chapter six and chapter seven, we're gonna see that next progression. There's been external persecution. There's been internal corruption. We're now gonna see the threat of internal division and ultimately ending in the death and the murder of this guy, Stephen, who's just a wonderful character in scripture. So it's this horrible progression from the spirit being poured out through multiple versions of attack and persecution, ultimately resulting in the first martyrdom as Stephen is killed. And that sets the pattern for what's gonna go on for the rest of Acts. There's one more thing that I want to talk about just before we read the passage, and it's this, like, chapter six is kind of setting up the story. Chapter seven, Stephen gives this amazing long sermon, and it's long, and we're not gonna go through it verse by verse and tear it all apart, because that'll take us weeks, really. Um, so I want to put two key motifs or themes or points from Stephen's sermon in our mind before we read it. So the Jewish people are going to attack Stephen and say, you are speaking against the temple and you're trying to change the law that was handed down by Moses. And so as we're reading through this sermon, pay attention to these two things because he's arguing and he's showing from Jewish history that God was never intended to be confined to one geographical location. So he's not just for Israel and his presence doesn't just center on the temple and he's going to give lots of examples of that. And then he's going to explain to them like, you know, this Jesus guy, that you're rejecting follows a whole line of people in your history that you've rejected. So God sends rescuers to Israel and your pattern is not responding to God's rescuers, but rejecting the messengers and the message that they bring. So that's the message that, that he's gonna bring to them and we're gonna see it. So we're gonna jump into Acts chapter six. We're gonna read all the way through chapter six and chapter seven. Um, and then we'll, we'll, we'll pull out some things from this passage. But I want us to be rooted in this story that's right here. Um, so Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, so church is growing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, T Timon, uh, Parmenas, Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, so outside of Jerusalem. 
But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and they brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The glory of God appeared to our father Abram while he was still in Mesopotamia, not here in Jerusalem, not the temple, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance there, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way, For 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They will be enslaved and mistreated, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. God said, And afterwards they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all the palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt where he and his ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you the ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? 
When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. Again, not Jerusalem, not the temple. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight and he went over to get a closer look. He heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning, and I've come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt and the Red Sea, at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with their ancestors and he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. And for this fellow Moses who led us out from Egypt, um, we don't know what's happened to him. This was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. It's okay, we're getting close to the end. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what was written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You've taken up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, and the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern that he'd seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them. When they took the land from the nations, God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. However, the Most High does not live in houses that are made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my foothold. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all of these things? You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. 
While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. You know, it's a long portion of scripture, but I, I have this conviction. It was taught to me when I was, I think, 18 years old. I'm speaking at a camp. And this gal, Rosie, looked at me and said, if you're ever going to stand up and preach the word, start by reading it, because then at least you know something you said was true. <laughs> so we've heard the truth. Now we'll hear the adaptation of the truth that's hopefully aligned with the truth. But yeah, what, what a powerful testimony of this man and his faithfulness to the gospel. And, and this is one of those interesting stories that I think gets misused when it comes to the teaching of the church. So I want to give one final note before we jump into explaining all of this. And I've said it before, but, but this is one of the places where, where it becomes really, really important. We have to understand when interpreting the book of Acts that some of the content is prescriptive and some of the content is descriptive. So some of the content in here describes how it was for the early church and is a story that we can look at that, and, and we can take principles from it and say, this is great, this helps us understand some stuff. Some of the things that are there are prescriptive, which say this is how the church should do the things that we're doing. And so our job as interpreters when we come to the text is to ask, is this passage descriptive of how it was that we can take principles from, or is this prescribing to us the way the church is supposed to be today? And what I find is a lot of people look at this passage in chapter 6 and say this is prescriptive when this passage is descriptive. And so this passage most commonly gets used to say, you know, there's a church structure, you've got your elders and you've got your deacons and they have to be male and they have to have these characteristics and they say that's what this passage is about. It's setting up the pattern for elders and deacons in the church. It may be descriptive and there may be some themes we can pull out from there that are relevant to that topic, but what's the purpose of this story? The purpose of this story is to introduce Stephen the purpose of this story is to help us understand the kind of man that he was, that by the time you hear these charges against him and you see that he's stoned by the Jewish leaders who reject his testimony, this story is here to set up the story that's coming, that, that he is a man full of faith and wisdom that the church had appointed to lead because he had the characteristics of leadership and integrity and good, uh, good reputation in the church. So, Let's, let's jump in from here. We're going to look at four things out of this passage, um, but let's just jump into Acts chapter 6 at the beginning and remind ourselves of this, this, this context. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of, of food. So what we have to understand here, remember, in, at the time that this is all going on, there's a really mixed bag of people in the church. And you've got two kind of predominant camps. Uh, you've got it with Jews and Gentiles that we read about in Paul's writing, but even within the Jewish church, you've got the Hebraic Jews. So these are the Jews that grow up in Israel. They speak Hebrew or Aramaic, probably Aramaic. Uh, and, and so they've been raised in the, the Jewish faith 
in Israel under that system. Then you've got the Hellenistic Jews. Who are the Hellenists? They're the people who've been in influenced by Greek culture. And so a lot of them come from places outside of Israel. They've moved and they've settled in Israel, and they just have a different way of viewing the world. They didn't necessarily grow up under the Jewish law. They've converted to faith. But you've got these two groups of people, some from a Hebrew background, some from a Jewish background. They're both followers of God. They're both Jews. And here they're having these situations where all of a sudden they're, they're now coming to faith in Jesus. So you get these Hebrew background Jews and these Greek background Jews coming together as the church trying to figure out how do we do this? And we all know that one of the ways that the enemy likes to destroy the work of the church is to start sowing division. So what happens here is the Hebrew people are naturally taking care of the widows that they're connected to and in that process are overlooking the other part of the church where are these, uh, these uh, Hellenistic widows over here and they're overlooking them. Now here, here's the first thing I want to say that I think is really, really important. In this passage, it's very clear that in this division, there is no prejudice or racism or ill intent going on here. The passage is making it clear they are just overlooking people innocently. How easy is it when you're slighted in innocence to build up resentment and harbor an issue against someone even though what you think they did is not what they intended to do? I think this is one of the primary ways in the church that the enemy comes in to destroy the church. That person didn't say hi to me this morning. I'm not going to talk to them for the next week because they're horrible. That person put me off the rota this week. I didn't get to sing as much as the other person. So now I'm going to resent that I don't get to do that thing. And, and no one's going, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to hurt that person by not talking to them this morning. I'm going to take that person off the team to really knock them down a peg or two. I'm going to not wave at them as I'm driving down the road. We take those things, we get offended by them, and then we harbor them. And we build up these resentments that cause rifts in the church. that end up splitting the church. Um, you know what some of those things are. I was reading in a book this week. It had a great question that I've written down from an next retreat. And it said, write out a list of all the resentments that you're currently carrying. We just sit on that one for a little bit. <laughs> I'm sure there's a few in there. What are the resentments that you're carrying? What are the resentments that we allow to build within the church that the enemy's then going to use to tear the church apart? So that being said, what happens in this situation is this issue is arising there is a conversation begins to happen. Now, rather than just resent each other and split into two separate churches, the issue gets brought to the apostles and the apostles decide, how are we gonna address this issue? And so there, there are four things in here that I think are, are fascinating and how they go on to address the issues that are here. So the first thing that I think the passage highlights is, is the priorities that they have as the early church. So you've got this verse that says, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. So, so you've got this work that's very important. All of these widows that are dependent on the church for provision. They don't have a, a husband to be able to provide for them. They don't necessarily have kids round about who are going to be able to provide for them. So this is a serious, like, ethical issue. It's a serious love issue within the church. It's a serious spiritual issue as they figure out how to care for their own. So what is not happening here, the disciples are not looking and going, preaching is more important than that trivial stuff over there. 
They're looking and going, there's two really important things here. The ministry of the word as we fulfill the commission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and the caring for people that God has entrusted to us as the flock. Both are really important, but what's happening is there's so much needing done here and we're clearly not doing a good job at the task. So we can give all our energy to fixing this issue. If we do that, we'll be neglecting the calling that God's given us, which is to preach the gospel. So they're not saying, we're going to go preach the gospel and give you the trivial stuff over there. They're saying, as we're looking at this issue, we're realizing that the, the work that's required here will cause us to neglect the work of God uh, as we preach it. And so, so you end up in this situation where they're trying to figure out what's the solution. Um, they're, they're not saying they're above waiting on tables. They are scared that if they dive into this, they will neglect the most important thing. The other side note that I wanna give here is we read this and we, we contextualize it today and we say the issue is the ministry of the word. Um, and we think of that as standing up here and preaching to a church full of believers. When they're saying we don't wanna neglect the ministry of the word, yes, they're talking about building up the church, but they're talking about taking the gospel to people that don't have it. We don't wanna be stuck in here inside the church navigating this work among Christians and failing in the work that God has given us to be out there sharing the gospel with people. And honestly, when I look at the Western church, I think that's where we're stuck. We spend a lot of our time and resources inside the church trying to fix the things with the people of Christ. And then we fail to do the better work that's what we're called to, which is taking the gospel out there to the people who need it. Um, Luis Palau Association, um, they set up these things in cities all around the U.S. called City Gospel Movements. And the City Gospel Movement here in Portland just did this study um, where they interviewed a bunch of pastors around the city to check the state of evangelism in Portland. And there were a couple of things in here that, that, that I read that really struck me that I think fit in well with, with the context of this passage. So first of all, when they're talking about the work of evangelism, this is how they define it. Evangelism is communicating the gospel message with words and inviting people to respond. There are lots of things that we do in preparation for the gospel, but the work that we're doing is not evangelism until we actually share the gospel with words and invite people to respond. And I think that's a really important distinction that we've often lost sight of. Um, in this report, they give nine key findings, and this is finding number three. Community service, or good works, increases credibility of the message but it doesn't equate gospel conversations. So they were asking pastors, what do you do for evangelism? And then they would share all of the things that they're doing out in the community. And then when they asked the follow-up question, how many gospel conversations does that result in? The answer was none or very few. So we can't look and go, we're gonna go out there in the world and do good works and call that evangelism. All the good works that we're doing in the world are building the credibility of the gospel. Do we love people as Jesus asked us to love? Do we welcome and accept people the way Jesus showed compassion to the people around about us? Because for so long, the church has been known for its negativity, for what it stands against, and for dictating to everyone else what they should do. And so we've become known as unloving, and the credibility of the gospel has been lost. 
Um, so in this situation where you've got like, that we don't want to neglect the ministry of the word to wait on tables, both are important. So they're going to go on and set up a team of people who are going to take responsibility for waiting on tables because that credibility is important and frees them to go out and do the work of sharing the gospel. So we need both hand in hand. But here they are clearly prioritizing the sharing of the gospel as the priority of the church. There's a second part in these priorities, just a couple of verses later, when they say the same, same thing in different words. So we're going to pick, appoint these men. We will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, this is the thing that struck me about this this week that was new for me, not new in my bigger thinking, but in this passage. I always hear people talk about this passage, and they say they gave themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. But that's not what it says. We don't want to neglect the ministry of the word to wait on tables, so we're going to appoint people so that we can devote ourselves to prayer and out of that, the ministry of the word. Prayer comes first in their thinking as it comes to how they go about doing the work that they're called to do. So that's just a, a nod to us as a church as we lean further and further into intentional prayer. It needs to be the priority because if we're preaching the word without that foundation of seeking God, it's never going to be effective. So, so that's number one, their priorities. Number two, the, the second principle we see here is delegation. Delegation of the ministry of the church. The apostles were not given to do all of the work of the ministry and just let everyone else kind of passively spectate. And they delegate the work. And, and there's lots in here that I love about how they do this. The apostles don't get in a room and say, let's pick a leadership team to do this. They look at the people that have the problem, these Hellenistic Jews that feel overlooked. He says, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will turn responsibility over to them. So he takes this group that is uh, being overlooked and oppressed and hurt, and he, and he goes to them and says, you guys look amongst yourself discern who the people are that have these godly characteristics and then you bring them to us and we're going to affirm your choice of leadership and then we're going to send them out to do the work of the church and I think in the western church we do it so backwards a lot of the time it's like let the person up here do all the appointing and all the decision making and and he clearly puts it on the people that are there to solve the problem and for them to come alongside and I love here too if, if you go back to that idea of waiting on tables there's the ministry of the word, and then there's waiting on tables. What are the qualifications that you would expect for the ministry of the word? Full of the spirit, full of wisdom, like know God, seeking him, know the truth. What are the qualifications in your head for those who wait on tables? Because in this passage, it's the same qualifications. Full of the spirit, full of wisdom, and Stephen, this guy who's full of the spirit and full of wisdom that's appointed to wait on tables, in the next chapter is given this huge defense of the gospel in front of religious leaders. So when we look at ourselves and say, I'm not a ministry of the word person, I'm a wait on tables person, that doesn't mean that we're let off the hook when it comes to knowing the word and grounding ourselves in prayer and filling ourselves with the spirit and going out there and doing the work of evangelism. Because on the list, it starts with Stephen. The next name on the list is Philip. 
And what we're gonna see as we get into chapter eight is all of a sudden Philip is sent out and there's this story of him with an Ethiopian eunuch. Another guy that is used powerfully by God in the preaching of the gospel is someone that was appointed to wait on tables. So this is something for all of us, not just some people. The last piece in there is this. They don't say, let's pick one guy and have him oversee this whole project. Say, let's pick a team of seven men and we'll put these seven men in this team effort to work together in sharing the gospel. And again, I, I bring that out because of the emphasis that, that you have been working on as a church to move from individuals running ministries to teams who share the responsibility and work on it together. Third principle in here. This one fascinates me. And this is why I'd say this is descriptive and not prescriptive. Um, is the issue of representation. And I think this is a really important conversation in the world outside of the church. Um, but it's really fascinating here. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch. So here's the thing. Hellenistic Jews, Greek-speaking Jews, had a problem with the way things were being done. So they didn't go, okay, what we need to do now is we need to form a leadership team and have half Hebrew-speaking Jews and half Greek-speaking Jews so that we're represented well and they can work together and make sure everything's done the right way. They actually looked at the people that were being overlooked and, and having trouble and said, let's form a leadership team fully representing you and release them to take on this issue. And I, I, I found myself wondering all week, what does this mean for how we function as the church? What does this mean for how we educate people in the world about representation? Because the way we tend to do it is, oh, we want to become a diverse church, so we need to add a couple of people of color onto our leadership team that become our token colored people that, that, that then can help lead things forward. But that's not representation, that's tokenism. I was like, what would it look like if we were like, as a church, hey, we wanna, we wanna move forward in ethnic diversity. What's it look like to go get a fully ethnic leadership team to come and lead the church forward? Because I'll tell you what, we will naturally gravitate toward the people in the room. We're already doing it. We as a church are, are drawing in people that look and think like us. And that, that's not a bad thing. It's part of human nature and how we're built. But if we wanna see the, the Hispanic uh, and Mexican Latina, Latino, Latino neighbors um, come into faith, then we need more representation here. If we wanna see the Indian uh, population of Hillsborough come into faith, then we need more representation in the church. So it becomes a question of what does it look like to find those people, find the people who know Jesus and bring them into leadership so they can lead things forward. If we want to get this one, if we want to be a church that sees more young people in our church, where do you have to put the, the young people? Not standing at the door giving out a bulletin, but in leadership, helping to lead things forward. Um, and, and so I think there's something really important about the representation of leadership and what it means for solving the deficits that exist in the church. I, I think it's fascinating. Um, as the story went on, you know, it turns into chapter seven. We see Stephen's response. I just wanna very briefly touch more on his points. I just draw out some of this, because I think when you read through a book like Acts and you see all of the content, it's easy just to get lost in the argument. Um, so Stephen's points are up here on the screen. You know, God is not confined to location and building. Israel repeatedly rejects God's chosen instrument. So this is what Stephen's about to tell them. He's been brought up on charge and he's gonna to explain to them. At the end of the day, he's saying, this is not a different message from the one that you've lived in. I'm gonna root my message in the Jewish history. And he walks through the history of their people. 
But as you look at the first issue there, uh, God is not confined to a location or a building. As he goes through this sermon, and I highlighted them briefly as we went through some of them, he starts by saying, you know, our faith begins with Abraham. And what happened to Abraham? When Abraham was living in a different country from our one, God spoke to him. God promised him, having revealed himself and moved and used Abraham, God then brought him into Israel. He talks about um, Joseph being taken down to Egypt and in a place that wasn't God's chosen place where his name was chosen to reside, that there God revealed himself to Joseph and used Joseph to reveal God to the people and used Joseph to rescue the people and then bring them back to the promised land. Um, he goes on to talk about Moses and Moses in this situation. I did, I did those back to front. No, I didn't. I did them right. Joseph's first, then Moses after. Then Moses out in Egypt in the wilderness, a burning bush apparition where God speaks to him. So he's saying, you know, you guys have this thing in your mind that I am talking against the Jewish faith because I'm saying that not everything centers around the temple. And he's saying the whole history of our faith is that God is everywhere, that he created the world, that he inhabits the whole of the world, that he appears to people all over the world, that he calls and raises people up. How guilty are we of that, that we confine God to the church, that this is where we meet him, this is where we hear about him, this is where we worship him. When God wants us to blow the walls off the building and recover the fact that he's out there everywhere. When we make church about the building, we fall into the, the problem that the Jews had where they center their faith on what happens inside that building and forget that he's at work in the whole of the world. The other part that he's talking about, Israel repeatedly rejected God's chosen instruments. So he's clear to them, you rejected Joseph. Like the patriarchs, the foundation of Israel rejected their very brother and tried to sell him into slavery. Why did they do it? because God revealed himself to Joseph, showed an image of the kingdom that was gonna be established. He communicated it to them. They're like, we don't want that. We don't wanna bow down to our brother. Let's kill him. Then we get to share the inheritance. Isn't this better? So, so in favor of self, they rejected Joseph. But God redeemed the situation and used Joseph to lead people to Israel to save them from, uh, to Egypt to save them from, from famine. But then he focuses on Moses. What was the issue with Moses? God takes this man. He communicates the truth to him. He sends them to his people and the people reject him. Who are you to judge us? Who are you to lead us? And then God raises up Moses and Aaron partners with them. They lead the people into the wilderness. And what's the 40 years in the wilderness? Constant complaining against God and against Moses. And he's going, you're saying right now that, that you're putting me on charge for rejecting the things of Moses. What have you done for your whole history as a religion? <laughs> You've rejected the people that God has sent. And then, and then he's saying to them, you know, you're focused on Moses and the truth that Moses revealed. Well, here's the truth that Moses revealed. Another prophet will come who's the one that God has promised and he's gonna lead us out of slavery again and fully into the relationship that God wants us to have. And yet you rejected that one again. And now you're persecuting me as another person that's pointing to him. So this whole message is just saying God is bigger than this temple. Um, God's message is constantly rejected. 
And you know, as we're talking about what does it mean to be a sent church, when we go out into the world, we are taking the presence of God that we have as we gather together. We're taking the presence of God that dwells inside us and we're taking it out into the world to reveal it to the people around about us. As we share the gospel, we become his rescuers and his messengers. And what's the truth of scripture? It's gonna be rejected and we're gonna be rejected. Some people are gonna accept it and their lives are gonna change, but some people are gonna reject it. And if we walk through life with a fear of rejection and we, allow, and we give in to the fear of rejection, we're never gonna share the gospel and be used by God to do the things that he wants us to do. And I think the biggest obstacle to us sharing the gospel is fear of rejection. What will that person say if I bring up the conversation? Will they still want to meet with me? Will they still want to talk with me? Will this make it awkward? And we allow that fear to stand in the way of teaching the truth that God wants us to teach. So his message, I think his message is relevant to us today and insightful uh, for what it looks like as we walk out into the world. You know, the last principle in this, in this passage is, is such a good reminder for us. The, the cost of our faith is death. There's a high cost to our faith. This is the story of Stephen, a man full of faith and wisdom who's living a righteous life, whose, whose life results in death. This horrible description, you know, I wish we could dramatize this right now because seeing it versus just reading it, you know, it says they covered their ears, then yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. This is like just all of a sudden this guy is talking it's told us at the end of chapter six, what did it describe him as? They looked at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. They saw holiness, they saw purity, they saw innocence, they saw the presence of God. He speaks this message of the gospel and all of a sudden something whips the room up into frenzy. They cover their ears and they're like, ah, don't listen. And they start screaming at him and they drag him out and they get bricks and they just start pounding this guy with bricks until he's brutally murdered. <laughs> in this story, at this point in the story, there are so many allusions to Christ. I mean, when you just read through Luke's gospel straight into Acts, we're only six chapters from Jesus' death. What happens at the end of Jesus' death? People are brutally beating him and murdering him and nailing him to a cross. And what does Jesus do? Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. In the middle of pain, in the middle of torture, in the middle of humiliation, his heart is for the people round about to know Christ. And what happens with, with Stephen at this part of the story as they're beating him, he's down on his knees and he's saying, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Receive my spirit. Just as Jesus said, you know, into my hands, I commend your spirit. So in every way, Stephen is mimicking Jesus and his willingness to give up his life for the sake of the gospel. Now, living in the Western world, being asked to be martyred for our faith is a very low possibility. <laughs> it, it can happen. But, but in here, the cost, death to self, is the cost of our faith. Every moment of every day, we're asked, am I willing to die to self for Jesus? In a moment where you fear rejection and sharing the gospel, are you willing to die to your fear of rejection to receive the power of the Spirit to share the words that he's given you? In the moment of, of resentment as someone has slighted you, and you're upset about it, are you gonna choose to sit on that and dig at it when other people are around the room and bring it up as an issue again and again and again? Or are you gonna to die to it and die to self and allow, allow that to go so that you can offer forgiveness to someone else? 
Uh, are we going to die to our preferences and our desires and how we shape the church? Are we going to die to having the worship the way we want it, the people in the church looking the way we want, the politics of the people around about as being the way that we want? Are we going to die to those things in order that Jesus can be glorified? Because that is the cost. The, the last point that I'm going to put up here is this. Serving God faithfully doesn't always equal a happy ending. And I think this is probably one of the biggest fallacies that we have to wrestle with as we communicate the gospel and as we live it out in the church. You know, if I follow Jesus, everything's going to turn out all right. If I sacrifice and do and give generously, he's going to provide everything I need. If I pray for the person that's ill, they're going to get better. Um, if I give up my job and decide to go to the mission field, I'm going to be this super successful evangelist and it's all going to be awesome. And we know that's not the way it works. And, and Stephen is the perfect example. He does everything right. He's recognized with good reputation. He's full of wisdom. He's full of the spirit. He preaches the gospel boldly and it results in his death. But at the end of the day, Christianity is not about living a happy life here on the earth. It's about living in intimacy with Jesus through the good and the bad, knowing that Satan's already been defeated, that Jesus is already victorious, and that he's gonna turn this all around and one day there's going to be no more sorrow, sadness, pain, identity, confusion, brokenness, policy, conflicts, wars, famine, abortions, whatever word you want to take that's not going to exist anymore. And we're going to sit in this place of wholeness and happiness. And this is the message that we get to take to the people around about us. Um, so Stephen becomes this beautiful example for us. Are you a person that is willing to die to self? Are you really willing to give your life for the gospel? Are you willing to give up your happiness for the gospel? Are you willing to give up your comfort for the gospel? Are you willing to give up your resentments for the gospel? Um, I'm going to invite Kathy, the one and only Kathy Evans, up now. And she's going to lead us through communion. You know, we're talking about the cost of death. Um, and she's going to lead us through as we look at this meal that symbolizes uh, what it looks like to follow him fully.